Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Warning. 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 Trigger alert. She about to say some real shit. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Gold Mines with your girl, Claudia Gold. What's up? It's so cold. Such a cold, cold winter. It really breaks my heart to see all the people sleeping in the street or on the trains, and they don't have a warm place to live, a hot meal. It's time to really... Do something about it, Mayor de Blasio. Wake up. We have people in need. And it's not just in New York. It's everywhere. How can we help these people? How can we connect to them? Because they are people. And they're not just someone to step over when you're in a rush getting from point A to point B. This brings me to our next guest, who spent a lot of time with homeless people, befriended homeless people, and who made his art for homeless people. Using spray paint to paint graffiti that was not traditional letter forms and sort of birthing the street art movement unbeknownst to him. When I talk about graffiti, I always like to tell the pedestrians who are not immersed within this culture that graffiti is all about freedom. It's all about self-expression, risking your ass for no money to remind everyone that these rules are just imaginary and you can live your life. It really does represent that to me. Our next guest name is Freedom. He has a tunnel named after him where he spent 10 years painting non-traditional portraiture graffiti and bonding with homeless people. Please welcome Chris Freedom Pape. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The age of 10, uh, my brother and I started going to Skyrink to take ice skating lessons. Okay. Where I'm still considered to be um, not good. So, <laughs> I thought you were going to say you like the swivel champion. <laughs> I and and you know we had candy machines in the subway station, soda machines, yes. things like that, and that's where I started seeing the first tags. And I was like, "Whoa!" I mean, I got to watch the whole. There was a time when there wasn't graffiti, and then there was a time when there was. Well, wasn't there always like you know Bob loves Evelyn kind of? There was absolutely, and and that's kind of a point that you, you have to, as a graffiti historian, you have to try and delineate, like, why? Like, why are you using Julio 204 in 1967 as the jump-off point? And the answer is because Julio 204 did a series of tags for 10, 20 blocks that could have been forgotten by everybody. And then you wouldn't have a movement. But it turned on this guy who was filthy Greek. Who, so this is 1968. Phil starts writing and starts getting up too. And he actually goes to uh, Brooklyn Tech. So he's even writing in train stations. But the key to it is that one day he's going out to um, Far Rockaway with his friend Demetrius. And he hands Demetrius the marker in 1969. And he says, you should write your name, write your name, whatever. You... Demetrius's name was Tacky. He added ah. the street number because he remembered that from Julio 204. And then he goes just all city. He just he becomes the first 24-hour-a-day graffiti writer. So that's why we look back to Julio 204 as the pivotal character in 67. Where is Julio 204? Disappeared. I, I've done, I've had. Have you ever who, met him? Never met him. Hmm. No. Met his writing partner, who was a guy named Jag, who saw him in the 1980s. And he used to write his name with a peace sign and a G. And cool guy. You were watching it sort of spring up around you. And of course, you were interested in it. Were you interested in it because it was mysterious and it was illegal or was it just becoming sort of something you would start seeing and familiar with you? I think it had a certain um, – when you got past that first little phase when people used to write with straight letters. And the reasoning for that is because they came out of school where they were told write with straight letters. So they thought that was what they do. And then you start adding, you know, crazy names and then style. So it's in 71. Once you have style and interesting names, I think that's when it really like Tacky 183, I didn't didn't register with me except as a phenomenon. Okay. You know? Um but it wasn't as like aesthetically pleasing to you, or it was like too simple and straight? Well, I like the phenomena part. Okay. Because who is this guy? And he wrote his name a hundred times and other people wrote their names once. But guys like Snake One or Cool Cliff 120, who had stacked letters, you know, the and, and again, these are all guys on my line, so they're on the one line. So, you know, I couldn't speak to other boroughs at that time. Those are the guys that really 
notched it up a level. There was just a certain coolness to it. I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a period in the same time, about 1971, we had a garage a block away. And I would say 10 of the boys from my building went over there to buy STP stickers, the gas. Yeah, I remember those stickers. And we pay 50 cents. 50, that's so much money back then. Um, So what would you say that was equivalent to? $10? $5? Well, it was equivalent to three comics. Okay. You know, three comics or or five candy bars. Right. Okay. um, Two sodas. Three sodas. But the point is, is, you know, why do, and this may be boys, why do 11-year-old boys, why are they dazzled by an STP sticker? It's a very simple logo. What does it imply? What does it infer? Does it infer racing cars? Does it, what's so mystical about this talisman? Well, the letters and the colors and didn't it have silver lame on it too? Sort of, I remember. I remember the black, white, and red. I thought it was blue, red, and silver with white letters, but I I could be wrong. Don't tread on my memory. All right, all right. I'm sorry. I'm a new jack (laughs) when it comes to stickers. But, I, yeah, I don't know why kids are inspired by I, – I don't know. I, I just know that there was also an escalation in graffiti then. So every, every week there was something new. And and I think that helped. And it helped that we had to take those stupid ice skating lessons every week. So because of that, we could, we could watch as the competition got better and better. And then um, at a certain point, my brother was like, yeah, I know these guys. I'm like, whoa, because he's an older brother, and that's what they do. Right. Like, they know everything. They know about drugs. They know about rock and roll. They know about, like, I was still listening to pop songs. I love pop songs. And then suddenly you hit that period where, you know, you go from being 12 years old in elementary school to being 13, and it's like, where's my Roberta Flack? Why can't I listen to Roberta Flack? And it's like, no, 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 no. It's Zeppelin. You got to do you're killing me and you got to smoke cigarettes you know and that's kind of how it all coalesced my brother was two years older than me he knew some of the guys at the band shell he was kind of tapped into the writing scene that way so when did you actually pick up an instrument to write graffiti probably oh god uh, uh 14 14 and you know who was 13 at that time was Hayes and we were all sort of kind of in the same Upper West Side loop. And he was so good. I mean, he I was this timid little... Back then, buses had a cachet to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were still being hit. And I can remember vividly me sitting in the back seat of the bus, hiding behind the, the seat with like a little El Marco and just being like Gen 2, which was my first name. Mm-hmm. Gen 2, don't look at me, Gen 2. But don't, please don't look at me. And then Hayes would get on the bus, and he was shorter than me, and I was short. And he would just have this opaque uni-wide, and he'd just go, get out of my way. <laughs> and he was just tagging everywhere. And when he was writing SE3. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then he'd kick out the back window, boom, dive out the back window and run into Central Park. And I was like, whoa. Who is this crazy man? Dude. Wow. I mean, what could be more inspiring? Did your brother write graffiti? He did. 
What was his tag? Uh, that'll re- we won't talk about it. Oh, yeah. I see. Secret, secret. Uh, Family secret. Family yes. secret. Uh, fair enough. But he did write. He did bring me into the culture. He then quit, and I'm kind of grateful for him doing that because it, you know, led on a lifelong journey. Right. So you're writing Gen Two. You're 14. You are catching tags on the bus. You're doing motion tags insides. Motion tags, yeah, trains, motion tagging, but, for example, wouldn't go to the Bronx. Okay. No. I mean, who goes to the Bronx? It's crazy. Yeah. It's just crazy. (laughs) Uh, Would go to Queens because we thought that's where the white people are at. Right. You know, and so it'd be safe. We We were really, we had a really skewed vision of how the world worked. I think. But yeah, I mean, we like, for example, couldn't get out at night. So we would wake up at five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and just get on the trains and go to the end of the station, like go out to Willits Point, for example. Mm-hmm. And then we would take most of our time trying to screw up the courage to go into the seven yard. And then we would get all these tags around the seven yard and we'd kind of just come back. And were your parents aware of what you were doing? Oh, we just, at that point, we'd say, well, we were jogging. We were running around the marathon. Right. The, you know, whatever. But um, they, you wouldn't come back with like ink all over you, no, no, and no. like no, uh, we weren't. You know, when I when I came back to writing, and Chris Two Seventeen was my partner, mm-hmm. and he would carry like five uni wides, three pilots, and then he would carry cans of Flowmaster ink with them. I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't believe that. I, I, because when I was a kid. You had your Flowmaster ink, you filled up your marker, off you went, you know, and you hoped for the best. You didn't mm-hmm. want to make a mess of yourself. But, yeah, Chris could get could get filthy. I mean, yeah, no, it's a messy. To. It's right, right, right. So you were keeping it all under wraps. Your parents had no idea. You were jogging. But you were, right. you were having this, um, like, awakening of, like, a passion, yes, right? Absolutely. When did you guys start painting walls? Because it wasn't – painting on walls was here and there, well, right? It wasn't sort of like a concentrated effort the way it was sort of when I was coming up, you know, after the trains in the 90s. I think I think things go in phases, and certainly the first generation, they all painted they on all walls. They all painted on the walls, yeah, right? They, they didn't use the train as their vehicle. Right. Right. For me, painting on walls was safer. Okay. So, you know, if I if I like I said, if I if I went out to the seven yard and then couldn't screw up the courage to get in, well, I'll hit, you know, the wall of the I mean, of the exterior of the seven yard or or we would go, I remember um the old world's fair was out there mm-hmm. and the science building was out there. And so we would wind up just spending the day out there, hitting that, going up to the rooftop, hitting the rooftop. Walls walls were, I thought, much easier, more attainable for me. It meant I didn't have to go into the one tunnel. Right. You didn't have to climb a fence. Well, yeah. not necessarily, or but it was just not as treacherous. Yeah. It, it kept me away from trains instead of guided me towards it. Okay. Then you sort of transitioned into painting trains, right? Like, yeah. And, well, pe- then, and piecing on trains. I mean, the goal, of course, is to piece on a train. Right. You're not really a writer unless you've kind of pieced on a train. Right. At least by that 
by those standards. Sure. Um, so at some point it had to happen, and I left writing before it happened. I left writing in 75, late 75, and then I went to music and art, and then I just gave up writing completely. Because? Well, I had gotten I, I had kind of gotten myself into some trouble in 75 on a variety of levels, dealing with, I mean, I had bottomed out at school. I had um, socially bottomed out in many ways. I was, uh, you know, doing things that you probably shouldn't have been doing at the age of 15. Said every graffiti writer said, ever, said every right? every graffiti writer <laughs> ever. And then I get into music and art, and I get there, and these guys are so competitive, the guys that I know there, that it completely took away the whole graffiti thing. It was I could compete with these guys drawing. Ah. And that was fine. That that fulfilled that need. However, I was also taking the train to school every day, and I noticed that there was a winter layup at 103rd Street. And I had to paint a piece because I just had to because I just didn't want that chapter closed without doing it. And so one day that fall or that winter, I should say, uh, I painted my first piece. And it was just horrible. But it, it didn't matter because I did it. And it was a Gen 2 piece. It was a Gen 2 piece, yeah. you have a picture? No. Isn't that just such a bummer? I no, in fact, I didn't see it. You never saw it. And there's a, there's a first attempt. It's like a G and an E with a bunch of drips. And then that just didn't work. And then I went to the end of the car and did it again standing further back. And um, one of the most amazing feelings – it's it's you, you come the feeling is when you get out of that station, like then I went up to 110th Street, kind of waved at the token person and got out on the street. I was like, oh man! I mean, self satisfaction times a million. Yeah, it's on it's unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was tempting to to jump back in because it did all seem so easy, but but I, I didn't. And uh, and I'm I'm kind of glad because I needed to mature a little bit. So when you were in music and art, like your style of art was realism. Realism. Yeah, in fact, at that and time. Mo- but wasn't that what they were sort of part of the curriculum? That's what they were pitching. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean, but the hyper realists had become they had they had come into vogue by the late '70s and were getting museum shows. So Dwayne Hanson, people like that. Mm-hmm. And we loved, I mean, we just, we loved that. It's interesting because I, I taught at music and art uh, years later and, and the kids knew nothing. And I can tell you that that as, I mean, I was a ninth or 10th grade, well, 10th grader. And I could list off, I could list off 20 names of illustrators because I wanted to be an illustrator. Sure. And if I had to list off 20 names of artists, and this is just going in to the school. And it's sad you don't find that anymore. And my friends could as well. So we were passionate about illustration more so than painting. We thought illustration was sexy. And maybe we thought it was attainable, whereas fine art. Right. There's just a handful of people. Illustration, you could work for a living. Yeah. To us, illustrators are celebrities. Mm -hmm. Fine artists were this thing that you couldn't couldn't attain to. You couldn't get to. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. And and there I had three or four friends who were incredibly gifted and and we would battle every night. If you didn't paint or draw for two hours when you got home, you were embarrassing yourself. Hmm. 
Right, because you needed to sort of— You need to bring something in the next day to show off. Right. And it wasn't a homework assignment. It was just— No, I didn't care about the humanities. They they were—I quickly learned how to dodge that and sabotage my career at music and art as well, but— but it didn't matter because I was I was making art for what you know. So what. now you're graduating high school. You want to be an illustrator in your mind. There's a little hiccup. Okay. Yeah. So we thought I would mature at music and art, but it turned a funny story, it turned out that that didn't really happen. So I continued to go off the rails, so to speak. But at least this time with with good people meaning college-bound people, stuff like that. And, okay. Uh, I was working at the New York Times most of the time doing uh, phone sales and then managing the phone sales department for them. Always working. But my grades were so bad, and it was the one thing my parents wanted, and it was the one thing I couldn't give them, and it put us on a collision course. And so one night when I was 17, I just left. So I didn't graduate music and art. And then that led to, you know, some years on the street and and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do. So, l- like, your years on the street, where were you living? Upper West Side. And my parents weren't afraid. They were they knew I was pretty streetwise, and they knew that I had a lot of friends. So um, you were, like, you were couch surfing, or you were, well, like, sleeping? Um, no, not really couch surfing. If I, there was a lot of abandoned buildings and stuff. But that makes it sound sad. And and honestly, they were they were very good nights. Like there there was a playground on 80, 85th Street off Fifth Avenue, and they had a large bathroom that I guess had been built in the nineteen thirties. And you could climb up there, and you could just you could sleep there, and it was nice. It was comfortable. like under the stars, yes, yeah. with no shelter during the summer. Sure, okay. You could sleep, you know where the old uh, New York skate ramp was, uh-huh. 95th, in yeah. Riverside Park. Sleep on those benches. Um, but most of the time I was sleeping in this old ping pong place that at night was a gambling den. And I would sleep there. I'd lock it up. I had the key. I'd lock it up at like 5 in the morning and fall asleep in my bomber's jacket just over my head. I got pretty good at it. And you were working at the time? I was working still, working at the New York Times. Although I eventually left that as well. Well, what did that's you how do? I got back into writing. Though. So I know you don't want to drudge up uncomfortable memories, but what were you doing when the elements were not on your side? Oh, the ping pong place. Oh, so the ping pong yeah. place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I, like winters and stuff like that. The ping pong place, the Thalia movie theater, um, things like that. And so these establishments, they were down with you. They were like, yeah. "Here's the keys. Like yeah. this nice kid, we're gonna." They were. They were. Um, definitely, and and I worked for them. A sure. Lot. So I made money here and there, and I made money side betting on things at the ping pong place, and so I had I didn't want to touch my bank, and my bank was kept behind a brick up in the bathroom in that playground. That's where I kept my money. I was putting off getting an apartment A because it was very difficult, and B because I didn't want that commitment. Like that commitment was once you get into that. Right, you're, you're in. A, right, right, right. You're at yeah. a hamster wheel to keep. Yeah, you're so like, oh my it. god, one hundred fifty dollars a month. That's oh, nuts. I, I can sleep on a ping pong table. <laughs> <laughs> that was that part of my life, and then my friends from college were coming home, and I would see them, and years would begin to go by, and they'd have like two years in in college, and I had none, and I had dropped out. 
So, you know, that was a bit of a wake-up call. And then I decided just for the fun of it to uh, see what happened. I got my GED just to just to get it. I tried out for School of Visual Arts, and I made it in, and that was great. You know, I thought that's what I would do. That, that would at least give me a skill set and see where that went. And that was 1980, which coincided with the fact that I had come back to writing in 79 with the brand new incredible name Freedom. So where was that? Where did Gen 2 end and Freedom begin? And what was... Oh, Gen 2 ends in 75, 76. Okay. And, and then there's nothing in between. And then there's this sort of resurgence on the street of guys like um, Ali uh, from the Soul mm-hmm. Artists, who's going around writing messages, you know, no nukes, put up your dukes, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's Jean-Michel Basquiat in the village and Al Diaz sloganeering down there. There's John Fechner in the South Bronx. And that's all kind of floating around in my brain, you know. Embarrassingly, I, I found some spray paint. There was a school across the street. This was, I lived in an apartment with some friends for about three months during this period. And so I wrote Freedom to Learn on the side of it. And then I thought, all right, wow, that was very cool. You know, now I'll write these freedom messages. This is going to be great because it's going to be so glad, you know, that John Michelle is so stupid and I'm so clever. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and I, and I, and there was uh, the best I ever came up with was uh, Citarella's fish store, which I know it. Yeah, it had the long black strip on the bottom, and it had a really nice pink opaque marker, and it said "Freedom for Fish Heads," and they had the big fish heads in the window. And you see, and you're looking at me like that's that's just not that good, but but no, for it's me, cute. It's very. It's very niche. It's you know what I mean. Well, that's, that's it's not like relatable to like everyone. In you know what I mean. It's very cute. I like it. It was cute and and it was long and tedious and took time and I didn't really have the imagination or the wordplay skills that Jean Michel and people like that had and so I backed off from it and just trimmed it down to freedom and then just kind of became a little blue-collar writer again. Okay. Um, only now I was 19, and I was an, I, when I was 15, I was, I, I was literally mm-hmm. about two feet tall, and now I was like 5 foot 11. So— it, It's a different game. Oh, it, it's just—and and a lot of guys, a lot of, particularly the RTW guys, seem to be coming back and making a statement, I think, about— They're revolt. shorties. They're little shorties. <laughs> yeah. No, we had been— <laughs> We were all in the same age group. Yeah, and I, I had known all of them at the band shell in my little brief stint there. So, yeah, now they were they were studs. I mean, they were graffiti studs. And I wasn't, but I got to play, you know, which is nice. Right. So that brings us to 1980. And this went on for about like four or five years, right? Until you sort of abandoned train painting for... The infamous tunnel with, you know, named after yourself. I did paint off and on from 1980 to 1985 on trains. And then I painted in the tunnel for the first time in 1980, just thinking it was a one-off. So they did, they coexisted. 
And uh, I uh, so they would. It was an overlap. It yeah. wasn't like I'm leaving this and doing this. Yeah, it's not like I was climbing a ladder and said, "Ah, career trajectory." Okay. Let me go this way. I liked it. I liked. I liked my friends. I like Chris Two Seventeen, who is now getting a lot of play, which is really nice, and he Good. gets to see a lot of people. He was terrific. Uh, I mean, you could you could literally never ask for a better writing partner, and. And he will tell you that, too. <laughs> um, so Chris was great. I mean, I say that about my my 17 as well. There you go. Yeah, there you go. It must be the number. So there was Chris, and then there were the Spanish Five. Those guys, they were great. They hooked me up a lot. I, I was just very lucky. And I think that part of that, though, is that you're older, and a lot some of these guys are younger. Chris was my age. Okay. So they kind of, they like old people. You know, for lack old, of a better nineteen thing. is old. Anyway, <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's a different right. It's not a little kid. It's you're you're you know a young man. Like for in, sure. in nineteen eighty, I remember Lenny painting the future of brake car, and I thought to myself, "Oh my God, he's twenty four years old. If I'm twenty four years old and I'm writing, put a gun to my head." I mean, haven't we all said that? Yeah, and and <laughs> it, it, despite the fact that it was brilliant and everything else, but. I was like, he, he, yes, it was. It was for kids by kids. Yeah, yeah. And there I was. I mean, I probably painted my last train when I was twenty-five, because I know I painted a few in nineteen eighty-five. I have no idea why. I had nothing to say on the trains. I was not good at it, but they were my friends. I, you know, I. I so you were rolling friends. right. It was about socializing, right. right, and hanging out and doing something, a, a fun group activity. Yeah. So now, you know, you happened upon this tunnel. You were like, oh, this is kind of sweet. I'm going to go back again. No trains coming. No people here. I'm going to start to, like, experiment beyond letters. I had actually been in the tunnel back in the mid-'70s with my brother and some of our friends. And where we tried to rob the freight trains. Now, why we would try and rob the freight trains, I don't know because it's you were a gangster. Like, Duh. Yeah, it's <laughs> like like we somehow had a fence somewhere waiting for, you know, the 25 TV sets that we were going to carry out or something like that because that's how cool we were. Sure. Um, and we would open them up and nothing. We'd get nothing. One time we got Carnation Instant Milk and, then, and that was about it. We made it. a fortune. <laughs> We, we wound up throwing it at each other. That's what we wound up doing. So I knew the tunnel existed. And then in 1980, I was piecing, and I use that term lightly because, believe me, in the context of the day, I was, I was putting mud on train compared to what real writers were doing. You know, the break in letters that people do that was probably created by Riff 170. So I was I was doing a Chris end-to-end, and I started to break it. And then I started to step back and get gray tones with the black on the silver. And I just had this, this epiphany that I could draw with paint. That you were going to use it. it like a charcoal yeah. and get I mean, different if I can do like this, gradients and gradations. Right. Um, I can do tonal work on a train, then I can do that. And now the question is, what do I want to do? What were you using to sort of be able to get that sort of sketchy effect? Stock. Stock caps. caps. Yeah. Stock. You weren't like a, a GIF. I, well, I mean, I was when you could get films. them, right? Right. Okay. I mean, yeah. Because it's a fat cap. Yeah. Right. Uh, definitely. 
But I didn't know until I think I was painting with Crash one day in 81 or 82 and he was using a fat cap on a canvas. And he was using it to carve to get this incredibly crisp line. I had never thought of that as a technical thing. I always thought you just use it, you go back and forth, and you just fill in your piece really fast, and that was it. But he found there was a technical side to it that you could, you could really get a, a crisp line. Yeah, so what do I – oh, man, I did some bad paintings, bad, bad paintings. I started playing around in Riverside Park, again, the home of those New York mm-hmm. skating guys. Did some bad paintings. And then I mentioned the Thalia Movie Theater. So at that point, I was actually doing posters for the Thalia, and they were a revival house. So it was my first real art gig where I got to invoice them, and I got to uh, – at that point, I wasn't living in the ping pong place. I had moved to a welfare hotel on 99th off Broadway. It was my studio, Freedom Studios. And I had an account. I had my first account. And Chris and I were down there, and we had a ladder. Chris had, a, had stolen a ladder from the MTA, really high up. And so I I did a long freedom to write piece with old school flames coming off it because to me that was still relevant. Mm-hmm. Classic. Yeah. And then I further down the wall, I did a Christie 17, and then we were done. And then I thought, you know what? I could add something to this, and I should put James Dean here. And then I said, give me, give me 20 minutes. And I ran over to the Thalia Theater. I started going through some other books. I found a picture of James Dean. I tore it out. It was about that big, which is about one inch by one inch. I ran back. I started just freehanding it and sketching it. And then I painted James Dean with spray paint. As, as many writers have observed, it, it really looks nothing like James <laughs> Dean. But in my ego-driven mind, I had painted James Dean. And nobody else had come close or tried to. And so I was onto something. It didn't matter. But it was a highlight for me. And I remember we came out of the park and we hit Broadway and I bumped into Ali. And I was like, Mark, Mark, you gotta, you gotta go check this out. You gotta, it's on the soul artist wall. I mean, it's there. It's painting. I painted James Dean. I painted James Dean. So that may have been 79 and I postdated it in 1980. And then at the same time, I had the idea of painting in the tunnel. I would paint the Mona Lisa. This took a lot of thought. I actually, more thought than I had put into a lot of paintings. The idea was, you know, let's flip art on its head and we'll put it in this one spot where you have a huge flood of light on it. And I must have used, oh God, I must have used like 80 cans of paint badly and bad paint, Martin's paint, stuff like that. Just terrible Martin's stuff. Martin's paint. Yeah. <laughs> With the paper labels and, and um and at the same time, Ali was on the outside of the wall, and he was – this is the old soul artist wall, so it had like a big Futura signature piece from 1972, and it had a Coke 82, and it had a bunch of others, Moses 147. He had a French film crew there, and they were following him, and he was painting around all of these pieces and then doing a cityscape with all of his icons like Slime Square and – the World Betrayed Center, and which he had destroyed, which was wow. interesting in 1980. And we're both checking each other out, you know, going back and forth and back and forth. And that was it. It took, it took like two days. And then I thought, that's a wrap. 
I'll go back on with my little graffiti life, my pedestrian graffiti life. But then I had more ideas, <laughs> more ideas that took 15 years to, <laughs> to finalize. Well, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. No, that's true. Great career plan, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Paint in a tunnel for 15 years with nobody being able to see So it. when you were in there, it was at an active train trestle. There weren't people living in there. So in 1980, the status of the tunnel was this. From 1980 to 1982, it still ran freight trains through, mm -hmm. which made it kind of sketchy. They didn't come through frequently, but there were five tracks Right, and you don't know if you're painting and if they're coming on the track closest to you, you know, and right. you're not prepared. Much it, closer right. than Amtrak, which would eventually wind up in the middle okay. instead of uh, up against the wall. But, you know, what I think back on now in terms of as a, as a New York City history buff is that these are the same trains that went down, what was it, Mirth Avenue, Murder Avenue or Death Avenue, which was all, also part of the, why we built the High Line. And and so there's this lineage that was going to be gone soon. I didn't know that. I right. never think New York's going to change, even though that's what it's famous for doing. Um, but these, yeah, these tracks had been there since the 1840s. And then the tunnel was built in 1932 by the WPA. So uh, the park itself was built in the 1860s by Homestead, 18, maybe a little later than that, maybe the 1880s. You don't think about that stuff. You think I, I'm painting the Mona Lisa and then getting out of here. But now I do. And I, and I kind of, it's kind of cool. So are you going every day? You're going once a week? You, no, no. when you're When you're in the middle of painting the Mona Lisa or one of these big demonstrative murals, your self-portrait, I mean, it's got to take more than one, it's more than a day. No, I'm uh, actually. Or are you doing it all in a day, and you're like staying from like yeah. you're, you're going to finish it? Yeah, I'm not leaving until it's done. Because and I think this is one of those differences between street art and graffiti, which is, and I was kind of straddling both worlds, but I had the mentality of a writer, and I was in a location that you know, to me, I was breaking the law, spray painting, and if I got busted. I was going to jail, or probably not, but but that's the for way the I night thought. at least. Yeah, right. And so I always had one. You know, I, I was never relaxed. I was always looking right. Over my yeah, shoulder. right, right. And that's why I consider myself to be a writer as opposed to a street artist. Well, um, some of them do work, you know, illegally under stress and duress. They do. It's, it's not not as often. It's not quite the same. Perception, too. It's the great debate. Um, but I think that for a long time, for example, Shepard Ferry, who I love, I don't feel uh, as a 22-year-old would be treated by the police the same way that I would have been treated writing the name Freedom on a wall or on a train. Well, sure. But it was also sort of like a different application of it. Absolutely, and that's and it, why. And it also looked like advertisement. Like yeah. it, it it had sort of this hiding in plain sight kind of. I mean, he could say, what am I doing? I, I'm just wheat pasting. Right. What am I doing wrong? I mean, how bad, you know, I'm not vandalizing. Come on. But you can't really say that with a canopy. No, 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 no. It's, uh, 
it's much more like weaponized or something, for sure. And that's not to diminish Shepard, who, who, as we know, has been not only arrested, but had his insulin withheld from him. Indeed. And yeah, so uh, he's been in much tighter jams than I've ever been in. I, the one and only time I ever went weed pasting was with him in the early 2000s in Los Angeles. And I was holding a big bucket of wallpaper, you know, paste or whatever, and the papers, and I can't crunch them. I'm like, it's so much easier just to, like, have, like, a couple of cans of light Mm. in the dark, and boom, I'm out. I'll drop them if I need to. How can I justify, like, I'm just holding this bucket over here, hey? He's the guy to do it with. Yeah, indeed. And I had to have insulin on me for in case he had an issue. It was a bit. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, was it, re- I was ready. I love that. If Nurse you Claw. Follow him on Instagram. And, you know, you just click like because what, sure. what's not to like? He's, he's Shepard Ferry. It's great stuff. But you see, you know, it's like, oh, this is great. This is great. And then you see the trolls come out. And it's like, making enough money yet, Shepard? So on and so forth. And I just think. Where does that come from? These trolls are everywhere. It's it's nuts. And there's a lot of people that are very jealous of uh, people's success. They're everywhere. Just wait. Once the money comes, the, the hate comes with it. Hmm. Oh, trolls. We see you. So you have a graffiti mentality, but you're sort of flipping traditional or what's expected of a traditional graffiti writer sort of on its head. You're doing portraiture, and then you're sort of mocking all this media and advertisement that's sort of being, like, pushed down everyone's throat, which is sort of always the great graffiti justifier. Like, oh, we have to look at all this stuff. We can't have a piece of this, too? We can't say what we want to say? Like, we're forced to look at this ad, but my expression isn't good enough. So wasn't that what you were trying to say with your Buy American? Well, the Buy American was a, was a goodbye. That was my... Oh, that was your... That was my epilogue, my final painting. And then did you do that with Sane? No, he had already died. He had already so, died and yeah. you just left. Because so the, the, front, the first time I had ever gone into the Freedom Tunnel, I was with Sane. Oh, yeah. person to be with. Yeah, well, he was the first person that ever was like, okay, you want to write graffiti? Let's go write. <laughs> God, he was so good. He was the best. I mean, he really was. I had part of his ashes, and they were scattered there. And I had had them for three years, and I I didn't know what to do with them. But I was just said, you know, so wait for the right time. So how did you meet him? Did you meet him because he infiltrated the tunnel? I well, he <laughs> and he would always. So I used to live on 113th and Riverside, mm-hmm. and he would be at my house a lot, and he'd always be like, "Oh, I got to go over to the tunnel." Like, I think he was living there, like, for a short time, like, here and there. It could be. Yeah. He definitely was like, you never come here by yourself, ever. Mm -hmm. It's not safe for you. And um, anyway, RIP to the great. One thing that he did that showed me what a, not just what a talented guy, but what a class guy he was, was I had this sort of rhythm going underneath the the gratings. I had begun to amass a collection of paintings that in some ways told their own story. And what he did that was so sweet 
and and I'll always remember it, is that he would paint in the exits so as not to break up the rhythm of those paintings. I'd still have my rhythm, and then you'd go into an exit, turn around, look at the wall, and there was this just dazzling, sane burner. And then you'd come back out, and you'd still have these monochromatic things going up along. He gave respect. I mean, that's the uh, thing. that You know, he was a... Uh... Yeah, he was a one in, one in a million for sure. Another funny story from then was uh, about 1988, some kid came down and did throwies in like a, a bunch of the paintings, some of which could be, you know, tweaked and others which couldn't and were gone. And I was with Smith. And he was like, yo, yo, you, you got to fuck this guy up. <laughs> and I was like... Yeah, yeah, I got to <laughs> fuck this guy up. And he's like, yo, I know this guy. I know this guy. You can get to him. I know him. And I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go fuck this guy up. And he's like, I know what junior high school he goes to. <laughs> like, well, well, junior high, Roger, I'm 28 years old. I'm going to a junior high school. and Where's Michael? Oh, man. I'll see you at three. So that's the problem when you get old and you're painting and you're and you're in yes. a young man's game or yes, yes, yes. Or I say young person's game. I'm so sorry. Right, because it can get very petty. It can get very immature and very petty. Yeah. You lived within this anonymous, you know, a, a ghost artist or something, and now sort of all of that is gone because of the advent of the internet or, more specifically, like Instagram, where people are like, "This is me." Like, I I own this, and I'm doing this so that you notice me. Your thought process was a little bit different, right? You didn't want to be noticed, particularly by the everyday person viewing it, right? Well, yeah, I think, I think there are a lot—I mean, so much stuff happened down there. I mean, I, I spent a year when I was sick just going down and doing drawings of the people who lived there. So I got kind of— so when did they come, and, like, what was happening with you? Like, Well, the homeless people moved in in 1986. Okay. Um, and by that, I mean the people who lived in the encampment that was about 95th Street um, in the park. There were some who lived in the south end of the tunnel who had already been there, but our paths didn't really cross. And the first I'd, I knew of them, I was painting the history of graffiti, which was kind of being done freestyle because— the Parks Department had painted over another painting I had done that take, took up that long space. And then over the history of graffiti would be the uh, the Buy American painting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and so, yeah, still five train tracks, little cement cubicles, which is where Sane would go on to hang out. Mm-hmm. And then – and so Bernard came over and, and – ambled across tracks and so on and so forth. And he's like, hey, you know, how you doing? Nice to meet you. So you're the guy doing those paintings. And I was just incredibly brusque and rude. And I was like, go away, homeless person. Be gone. I I can't, you know, I can't. I, I have to focus. And then he did it the next day. And then finally on the third day, he handed me this sort of just burnt out, cup that just literally reeked of typhoid. I mean, you, you, you just knew you were going to die drinking it. But I was being rude. 
and I realized that. On the way out, I climbed down from the ladder, had the ladder walked over to the fire, had a cup of tea with Bernard, began to talk and um, began to understand who the people were. And I, I wish that my, my perception had been slightly different in that, I mean, I consider myself to be a liberal guy and a caring person and a compassionate person. But when you're in a tunnel and you're incredibly vulnerable and you have, you know, people sitting around a fire and you don't know who they are and you don't know what kind of drugs are being passed, you know, you, you just— you Your hackles be, are off, right. Yeah, you want to be cautious and you want to, you know— So I was done with my painting. So now, at least if anything happened, I could I could run, you know, so— Holding a ladder. Holding a ladder. <laughs> But it, it, it came time to actually, you know, do the decent thing and say hello and, and drink from the cup, so to speak, which I did, and I didn't die. Although it is ironic that I would come down with the Epstein-Barr virus shortly after and oh then my wind God. up being, sitting down there with them for a long period. Yeah, and that was my introduction to them. And then I was uh, taking visual journalism at School of Visual Arts and I was doing large portfolios that told stories. And I decided when I got sick that um, I could get to the tunnel. That was one of the few things I could do. I wasn't going to school then. I could get there, sit around the fire, and and tell their story. And I did that for about four or five months. Funny story, which is just that after my first month, because uh, I couldn't take transit. I couldn't. I was just too tired. I, I took a cab down to 23rd Street, lugged these drawings up to show my teacher, who's just great teacher. His name was Sam Martin. Laid them all out flat on this platform. And, and you know, because the lighting down there is so dazzling, I was working in charcoal and, and just made everybody beautiful. And he looked at me. These are the most beautiful homeless people I've ever seen. And I was like, Oh, God, all that work. You're killing me. So he came up with the idea that I would wake up at 6 in the morning and I would draw with my left hand. And I would allow for, because um, when you draw with your left hand, you just don't have that control. Right. And lines go through lines and things happen that you normally wouldn't allow from your right hand. So I would do that for about a half an hour and then I would go into the tunnel and I would sit down. I'd have my two sketch pads. I'd start doing background stuff until somebody showed up, and then I'd begin whatever the portrait was. And then those lines began to become disjointed. And With your right hand. Yeah. And, and that gave it a sort of jagged, expressionistic look that um, I threw away the tonal work. So totally. it was more like evocative as opposed to like realistic. Right? Um. It's taking away the prettiness. Okay. It's like, you know, you go to school for illustration and, and you have a model and the model's five foot eight. But if you go to a school for illustration, everybody that draws it, that model's suddenly five foot ten. Of course. Because that's what they're there for. Make it pretty. Right. Well, it's I went to college for fashion illustration. Oh, so. well, then they're six foot four. Right. Yeah. And so we had to, like, if you measure the human body by heads. Mm-hmm. Right, like an average body has seven, but in fashion illustration, they have nine. 
So you have to like sort of add that extra foot in the waist and in the leg. There you go. Where you're stretching, you're pulling the proportions out. And it was very hard for me. It's very hard for me not to draw figuratively like these elongated, stretched out, thin. I I have to draw with my left hand <laughs> because I, I still do it. Mm. And I was in college a very long time ago. Like it's still like so in my mind of the way, you know, like subconsciously I draw like that. So I think that's, uh, you know, very like remarkable to sort of like retrain yourself to sort of look at things in a different way. And then you have to come back out of there and draw pretty things again. Right. You know, so I learned a valuable lesson from it. And um, and the other thing I did was I had no time. I mean, if I was lucky, I would have somebody for two minutes. So I could spend all the time in the world on the background doing the, you know, the ceiling of the top, whatever it was. So I just, I, I had a, a roll of white tape around my wrist. And if I made some kind of, you know, major mistake that I wanted to get rid of, I would just tear the tape off, put it on, tear the next piece, put it on. So that was your so whiteout? That was my whiteout. Okay. And those, I still have those drawings, and they, they're just covered with decaying, brittling tape and stuff. But, yeah, that was the first, I think, I think major work I did. And, and shortly after, well, I had already done the self-portrait, but I, I never considered that a major work. I always thought that was a, a throwaway. I mean, and then everybody liked it. So um, I was lucky. As to how I paint, I will say this. I paint paint like a writer, paint fast, and eventually after a few years came to the conclusion that what I wanted to do was I would paint until I felt I had made the point. So if I was painting a portrait, if I felt you knew who that was, that was it. Leave it alone. Okay. So I was actually sketching, I think, more than painting. Um, and the only time I really moved away from that was when we did the 3rd of May, uh, which was Smith and I, uh -huh. where which required more, I mean, couldn't be as impressionistic. So, yeah, I did develop philosophy. It took a few years. It also took a few years to decide what to paint. But I did it because I thought, no one's ever going to remember this hip-hop stuff. This is a whole rap music thing. Right. You know, it's, Were you uh, a fan? At the time, uh, I was a fan when I was in high school in the late 70s because everything was so underground and it had the same kind of philosophical underpinnings that graffiti did. Everything was, you know, came out of a city that had been in ruins in the 70s. And I liked that. I liked that whole thing. As it became more commercial... I stopped listening to music, and I think I stopped listening to music. This was about 1984 because my radio station went off the air, and I had buying power to buy cassettes. So I just locked myself into this world of, like, 70s and 60s stuff that, you know. Okay. And some 80s, a little 80s stuff. So I kind of missed the entire evolution of, of, of hip-hop. Hip is graffiti hip-hop? No. Obviously, it is not. But I don't care. I know <laughs> some people— are like, yo, that's so fucked up. Some people um, think it's fucked up, but I think it's um, it's a real disservice to graffiti to, to so lump it in. 
You're I, one of those I people. I am right. No, I do not think graffiti is hip hop. Right. Right. And and I I found out um, working on a book. I had to contact uh, all these European writers, and who are many of whom I didn't even know. And I'd reach out to them and I'd say, hey, I'm working on this book project, and you know, I I, I just need to get some more information about you. And they say, well, you know, I started with the second element of hip hop, and I was, and every one of them had the exact same script. For me, it was the third element of hip hop, and I kept thinking, what the hell? Is, what are these guys talking about? Like, what, what, what did I miss? I, you know, is there a book by Jeff Chang somewhere that maybe <laughs> will define it? No, I mean, I, I, I think one has nothing to do with the other. I was there in that period of time in 83 and 84 where there was a sort of coexisting. Right. And I can understand how there's Marty, a inter there's a big intermingling. There's yep. a there's an overlap and there's uh there's people that have excelled in both and I, I definitely think and for them that could be their truth, but I don't think it's a overarching truth for everyone. And and I think it's mistakenly, you know, the media yeah, when you the know. top probably 22 graffiti writers out of the top 25 tell you, I don't listen to hip-hop. When Scene says, I don't listen to hip-hop. Blade says, I don't listen to hip-hop. You know, you have to, you got to respect that. And say, these are, the, these are the quick, I don't listen to hip-hop. These are the big dogs. So, yeah, I, and certainly going back to, you know, filthy Greek and tacky and stuff like that. I mean, when when you start picking out the major names in the movement, they're not listening to hip hop. So, no, and they had nothing to do with it. They had they just. just if like you lived in in Europe at that time in 1985, and you're watching Wild Style, and then you're watching Star Wars, and this is what informs you because you can't get to the U.S., then of course you think it's. It's all, you know, interwoven. So, uh, yeah, of course. If you're a graffiti historian, then you think, well, that's just silly. Well, my mentor, Z Zephyr, RTW. Oh, the best. The best, right? The best. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the best. He was so into psychedelic art. And I, I was like, what are you talking about? What's and, that? Yeah. And I was like, this has something to do with the Grateful Dead? No. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean? And later, you know, my my mind expanded, and I was able to really understand it. But I also really want to talk to you about women in this culture, more specifically about Barbara and Eva. As they like to be called chicks. Oh, chicks. Yeah. They like to be called chicks? Oh, yeah, chicky babies. Oh, okay. Women, don't they? They love it. Or am I, <laughs> am I showing my age? Chicky babies. Yeah, tell me about the chicky babies back in the day. The chicky in the babies are wonderful, first yeah, of all. Let okay. me just say that. Shout um, out to, to all, all you ladies out there. They are in the writing culture early on. Right. And then they get shunted aside. Why? Get, I think what happens is that, all right, so look at, look at you go, let's say, 70 to 72. Okay. You've got your Barbara, you got your Eva, who can go pound for pound with any writer out there. Sure. And are certainly in that top ten. Did list. you know them? I did not. Okay. Um, and I, I can tell you I can tell you that Eva is certainly still alive and in a really wonderful twisted sense of irony, she has like a something like a nephew or something like that who writes and who hangs out at Tough City. 
Oh, really? And Eva actually showed up at Tough City one day to like, come on, come on, you got to go home, something like that, you know. Wow. And Checker 170 said, you're Eva 62. And she's like, yeah. And she was very sweet, but she was like, you know, I got to go. And um, so I give him big ups. That's That's one of the few people that, you know, that I've wanted to meet, haven't had a chance to meet. Charmin 65, thank goodness, is around and is is still a huge voice. And there are now pictures of Charmin pieces on the train uh, playing with the so-called big boys. So that stuff can uh, – and that – the picture has just surfaced in the last sort of five years. So that's really nice. Um, Rocky 84, who is a little bit more of a spiritual – person mm-hmm. in that Rocky was Rocky was the girlfriend of Stitch One. But boy, they can date. I mean, there are now photos are pe- appearing now that uh, that were taken by SJK 171 back in like 1972. And these are photographs of Rocky tags that are dated 1971. Wow. So it's like Stitch and Rocky forever, you know, 19, January 1971. And you're like, oh, Man. So, and then, you know, of course, it still gets into the whole thing of, well, who was better? Who was more important? Who was Charmin 65 is in that mix. Stoney from Brooklyn is sure. in that mix. So, I think if there's a problem with them historically, the problem is that is accessibility. Okay. Um, I, I could tell you doing wall writers, we would have done anything to get Barbary Eva. Uh, and it didn't happen. Right. So, and that, when you're trying to tell a story, you, you do the best you can. And um, when I did Kings of Broadway, for example, I mean, I had to take guys who weren't even on the one line because they There's... were more articulate and could could tell you what was going on. Okay. Um, and that may not be fair historically, but um, a lot of old writers, they're, they're, they're not a lot. There are some bitter old writers who are like, yo, why does that guy get to be in that project? A lot of bitter old writers. Okay. Okay? Let's be real. And the answer is because you didn't show up. Or you wanted to charge money. Or you wanted to, you know. Well, I just, you know, I have a real problem with uh, sort of the state of the community, of the graffiti community. Where... What'd we do this time? No, it just, I feel... I was I was really lucky, and I, I sort of snuck in when sort of the older writers turned their back on, you know, like when the train stopped. Like, I started writing in the late 80s, and it was like, yo, if you don't get up on trains, you're not a real writer. But I was a real street bomber, and I got lots of love and support from the generation before, which my male friends didn't really necessarily— get and I, I think it was because I was a woman mm-hmm. and they were like oh she's so crazy she's so cute that Claudia we're not gonna like hate on her like she's got the odds to act against her graffiti has really turned its back on on the on the young and the next generation on mentorship on handing down passing the torch or whatever however you want to say it I'll speak for myself I owe everything to the early writers and we all do Right? Everybody does. 
the fact that they don't sort of love, give back, appreciate the new guard is a real detriment to our culture. It still is perpetuating, but in a negative way. Do you know what I mean? Like it's still it's still moving forward. There's still people coming in and saying like, oh, I'm going to write. And you don't necessarily have to have a mentor. Like you can just be balls out on your own. Like, um, right. and that's how I was when I first started writing. I was like, oh, nobody wants to write with me? Fuck them. I'm going by myself. Like I'm going to do this. And then because of my attitude like that, then, oh, you know, Claudia, come on, like clean this up, make this neat. Like I got a lot of love and guidance, whether it was about graffiti or or life in general. And then people in my generation sort of didn't. And then that sort of went on to the next generation and on to the next generation where you have all these huge legacy crews that have no new members or, mm. you know, and they're sort of like elbows out, like, no, 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 the, you can't get in. Like, this is just, it's a closed box. You're not, you're not down. And, and it's just led to like a lot of bitterness. And so the young kids are like, oh, I don't fucking care about these old guys. I'm going to go over this fucking piece that's been here forever. Or somebody went over like Lee's Allen, the Allen Boyce piece or whatever. Mm. Right. And I'm sure they didn't even know. Right. Right. I don't think it was like sinister or like they were just like, Ooh, what is this? Like, I'm going over this. But it's because that there isn't that intergenerational connection. There isn't that intergenerational love that there should be. That's what I'm, I'm all about. That All about the love. A lot of times with these older writers, to the untrained eye, to the non-connoisseur of the culture, it looks very basic. Like, it can look very basic. And some of these kids are so proficient and inc- there's this very, like, disparage, like, how is he making money and I'm not making money and I started this. Oh, stop. Like, there's room for everyone. That's how I feel. Well, but there's also – there's a practical side to it, which is that having been responsible for putting historical things out there mm-hmm. uh, and, and certainly speaking to a lot of different writers, I think that um, – first of all, let me just say that it's <laughs> it's hard for me to speak post-1989. That's okay. I, I've, only, I, I've only got so, – my brain is like this big anyway, <laughs> and, and that much of it is taken up. With 69 to 89 graffiti, and then the rest is my family. Right. I got you. I'm the so, same way. <laughs> so it's – so in a way, people who went on to become successful, I, from what I've seen, have been very good to the younger generation. People who didn't go on to become successful in any way, shape, or form in life uh, aren't giving back. You know, for the most part, not everybody, but, um, and, but that's, I, I, you know, they were the, these were guys who were, they were the quarterback of their high school football team and, and they led them to a championship and then that's it. And now they're not. And they're, they're the ones sitting at the bar all day pissing and moaning about. Well, that's about the life. thing. That's the problem with like, graffiti is that a lot of people peak young and they never can achieve that same feeling, that same uh, fanfare 
whatever it was that they sort of long for again, and they're sitting around daydreaming about that time when they were 15 years old and they did, you know, such and such. And that, to me, is sad Mm. that it can't just be like, oh, I was a crazy kid or, you know, when I was doing this. When I think about all the stuff I did, like, it almost seems like it was a movie I watched. It wasn't my real life. Right. Like, it was like, who did that? I did that? Like, me? I'm a mom and, you know, a business star. Like, I don't do that. But I did. If I was leading a very unproductive or it didn't feel like I had a purpose beyond that, you know, I could be stifled in 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 the same and saddled in the same like, oh, you know, I did this and that's all I have. There's There's a lot of problems with sort of appreciating the old school, them being kind and taking that love and turning it back into love, you know, in a, in a different direction. I would submit that by far the greatest thing I've ever done in my life is had a family. I would also submit that it pains me that my wife does not get the credit that she get that she should get for helping me to have art shows and books and things like that. Let's let's hear it. Let's hear it for Mrs. Pape. She's she's amazing. <laughs> I mean, and shout out to my husband, too, who totally supports me and helps me, you know, reads my horrible grammar and corrects me. And these are these all I mean, you need a support system. These are so much bigger than what we did in, you know, in terms of art and things like that. To me, they are. Well, do you think it's a do you think? It's because it's sort of a group effort and that it is community-based as opposed to sort of lone wolfing, painting. You know, when you're an artist, it's can be very lonely, right? Even when you're writing. I like it that way. I like to be I like to not be around large groups of writers. Uh, agreed. <laughs> when you're painting, yeah, and everybody like looking at you and like, yeah, it's super annoying. Or even just talking, I just I can't. But get a you know, in. when you put two minds together, that's when the excitement happens, and maybe that's part of it for you and your wife and her endless support of you. It's because it it is in the spirit of uh, you know more than one, not just me, mm. right? Less focused on self even though it is self-focused it becomes about the family right Right. and then it becomes when you have children it's like your legacy of you know if you didn't have children right you could say like i will live on through this artwork you know photos of this artwork if the originals aren't there and that's how but when you have a child, it's like a tangible, like, this is how I will actually live on. Like, my genes are in here. This is my blood. This is going to, like, it becomes bigger, of course. But I think I'm also, I'm just secure about, um, and this really didn't have anything to do with me, but once the internet came along, my my role in graffiti and my it was cemented. It didn't mean I was going to make a fortune from it or anything like that. Right. It just meant that suddenly, you know, with urban exploration 
in particular. Mm -hmm. um, the Freedom Tunnel became kind of a hot spot and so on and so forth. Um, and there's been enough media about it, and I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm very – I've had a few people come at me in things and – you know, and I just cut them off because I don't, I don't, I don't do that on social media. It's like if you want to private message me. Oh, what do you mean, somebody means, talking shit? Yeah. By, oh, just block and delete. Can, can I yeah. goodbye? goodbye. <laughs> so, so then, and then, in it, when I meet people personally, then people are lovely. Um, I, yeah, I, I also think that, and and I'm not, I'm not making a, an excuse for this. Uh, in terms of the mentorship thing, which is – I mean, I had I had Tracy 168. Tracy would come to my place, shitty little hotel room, and he would do a tea. Like I'd had this – I had all this poster-making stuff back then. And he'd do a tea, and he'd say, okay, yo, Wild Style, hook it up. You do the R, and I'd do an R, and he'd say, all right, I'm going to do the A. All right, yo, Wild Style, do the C. And then, and then he's, all right, well, now we'll do freedom. We'll do that. Right, I'm going to do the F. All right, wild style. You do the R. Hook it up. And you learn. I mean, it was seriously hands-on mentorship mm -hmm. where he was showing me almost through osmosis how you can do this. Um, and it was fascinating, not just the fact that he taught me, but the fact that how he taught me. Um, well, also, do you have an opinion about them using the term wild style for that movie when that was sort of like his term? Well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, look, Tracy signed papers. He got paid for it. Mm -hmm. um, that's a reality. He has, in other ways, made money back from other lawsuits that you would hope would assuage him and help, you know, uh, heal him. I mean, but uh, Wild Style was a crew. He invented the term. That's that. What you do with that legally, I mean, nobody expected Wild Style to blow up. Right. Uh, least of all, Charlie Ahern, who was— uh, I mean, it's a terrible movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a classic and incredible, but it's like, it, yeah, sometimes uh, I get a little embarrassed when I watch it. Well, and yet we do. Yeah. But we watch it. <laughs> um, so now you are, as you should be, this graffiti historian. What are you doing to sort of like document all of this so it doesn't sort of live and die with just, you know, the people that know how— how can people sort of really learn about graffiti culture in in a um, scholarly way? I, not even in a scholarly way, in a, a, a very factual from start to to present. Yeah, I think I think we're seeing, um, you know, with the amount of uh, whether they be museum shows or major retrospectives. Or James Topp teaching at City College, or Sasha Jenkins teaching at Pratt, teaching things on graffiti. Um, I might be jumping into that role as well. Uh, I think that you're, you're going to see um, more of that. Now, I th I now think I'm going to I'm going to just say something. Now, these are friends of mine. Hit me. 
I mean, not physically. They are. No, I don't want to hurt you. I'm very weak. Uh, (laughs) I feel, this is my opinion, my my sole opinion, I'm sure there are some people that agree with me, that a lot of these historians are politically aligned and that they're like, you have to be careful who is giving the history because it's not necessarily inclusive of people they don't like. And that's been the way it's been forever, historically. I mean, mm-hmm. I feel that there are lots of missing elements through these stories that I'm hearing through these people who I believe are well-intended, and but there's so much alignment. And um, I'm not going to call it like dishonesty, but there's there's huge holes and missing information that I feel are is a detriment to to us. But there's also there's Jack Stewart's book, which is you can't get around that. Jack Stewart's it's it's true. I have no doubt that certain some historians will elevate one area, other historians will, for whatever reason, uh, 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 you know, Spar, for example, him and Eric. Grew up on the BMTs, loved the BMTs. James Top, big BMT guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big BMT guy. To me, it's more important to understand why the BMTs were um, became the line that they did, like why they became a throwy line over a big style line like the IRTs. It's more important to understand that dynamic than it is to say, BMTs, they suck. Because they don't suck. There were some pivotal pieces done on the BMTs. Uh, it's interesting. Todd Lang just came out with a book. Um, and this shows you how history is written, by the way. Uh, and Todd makes no bones about it. He doesn't say, look, I'm a graffiti expert. I know everything, bop, bop, bop. But what he was able to do was he was able to procure all of these BMT slides. And it's a pretty fair representation of what went on on the BMTs. Okay. And I'm plugging his book, too. Um, It's Born to Run by Todd Lang, and everybody should purchase it. But it's still – it's missing Repel. It's missing Sorrow. It's missing Mist. It's missing um, Cato. These style masters that were – you know, that could give the IRT guys a run for their money. Mm Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, as a, as a lifelong native New Yorker, what was 9-11 like for you? I was incredibly lucky. And by incredibly lucky, I mean that um, the emotional, psychological toll, friends and family, I was teaching. And I was home that day. I remember it vividly. But I think I have a slightly different take, probably because of my age. First of all, like I said— I was not impacted the way so many people were. But I think the way that, you know, when you go back to the Kennedy assassination in 63, television is a brand new medium. Kennedy is Camelot, et cetera, et cetera, the beautiful young wife. His head's blown off. And for the first time, everybody is getting their news about this surreal event around the television. And all of New York stopped, every city everywhere people stop on the street and they stare at TVs 
and they they and they cry and they they can't it's a transcendental moment in history and then robert kennedy gets killed which i remember vividly and dr king gets killed i remember that vividly but the fascinating thing is that as tragic as those moments are they are not they are no longer new to us and as you continue along the route so you could say well john lennon being assassinated okay. i was i was there literally i was 15 blocks away wow when he was killed raced right down there you could say well that that was my jfk moment right okay because it's i'm now old enough i'm 20 and it's it's John Lennon. Who who would shoot John Lennon? That's insane. Because you don't remember the JFK thing. You were three years old. I was three years old All for right. JFK. I, I worked for Robert Kennedy both oh. in 65 when I was five years old and in what? 68. What? That's illegal. No, it's not illegal. <laughs> in 65, we were licking envelopes for him. He was running for New York State Senate. Damn. And in 68, 68, he had the big headquarters on 84th and Bro- 83rd mm. and Broadway, which used to be a Schraff's. Um, and then the Kennedy clan bought it. And so you had these guys coming in. Um, the older guys had sort of an Irish accent. Oh, why don't you be putting those boxes over there and taking the stickers? He was um, in New York. I mean, he was on platform trucks and stuff like that. My mom has said that uh, I was in a motorcade with him, that I went to the headquarters one day and they said, hey, you know, you want to be in a motorcade? And I said, sure, sure, that'll be great. I don't remember it, though. But but I take my mom's word for it. Sure. She doesn't, she doesn't lie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a lot of that political stuff. We were on the Upper West Side. I mean, it, it, that's that's all you do up there. Um, so 9-11 So 9-11. You get back to that. And it once the initial planes, I mean, because of communication – because of the way that we, uh, um, may, or maybe just the way I see it historically, as horrifying as it was, I felt safe and I felt, and I was on the Upper West Side, I not only felt safe, but I still felt that our country was safe. And that sense of uncertainty in the JFK assassination where they thought the Russians did it. The mm-hmm. bomb could go any second. World War II, again, people are out of their houses with rifles. Um, the most poignant moment for me in um, 9-11, I went to a number of funerals because that was something I could do. If there was a funeral on the Upper West Side, I would go for a firefighter. And I would just stand there because you're supposed to have big groups of people mm-hmm. when firefighters die. And here these firefighters were being put away and maybe 50 people would show up. So they requested that people show up. And that was the easiest thing you could do. Um, but one year later, it was the anniversary. And as usual, I was awake at 4 o'clock in the morning on 104th Street. And I started hearing these bagpipes. And I thought, well, this is very surreal. And I didn't know what it was. And I went downstairs, I lived on West End Avenue, went to 104th and Broadway, and it was these bagpipers that had come all the way from Yonkers, I believe, and they were walking the entire route all the way down to the Twin Towers, where they would arrive, I guess, at about 8.48, which I think is when the first plane hit, 
And that was the most emotional, I think. Hmm. That and the fact that two people that I knew were in the towers. Um, and that afternoon we found out that both of them were safe. Hmm. So those are sort of the three emotional things. But in terms of overall, I mean, as crazy as things got, remember that plane then crashed a month later and we had uh, uh, people were sending uh, poison to Right. Yeah. They were in the anthrax. the anthrax. Yep, 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 yep. I wasn't I wasn't worried. I felt that that I feel I felt so differently. I was downtown and I was oh, like, well, Oh my god, I was like, We're gonna die. Like oh, that's it. Like I'm about to die. Like I better just like hold on. Mm. Better wear some shock absorbing sneakers or something because it's coming. Yeah. I was able to watch it in the convenience of my home with my TV set. With my dad on the phone, analyzing. A lot of people tell me they felt very disconnected. Like people that they were like, oh, it was just business as usual when, you know, I was uptown and it wasn't like a big deal or, you know, and that sometimes like the news didn't even like travel up there until like much later in the day. I remember I went out for bagels at one point and all the dust was settling on my hair. And when I got home, I realized that's people. Yeah. And that was a heavy thing. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I I was very lucky. I was uh, so if I if God if I had known somebody or something like that. Years later, I would meet people who uh, who were there and either got out or had you know some amazing story to tell. And you know, and you think just one person's life that gets lost is it touches so many. Yeah. I remember. Do you remember all the signs? Yeah. Um, Everywhere, and you know those people were dead. I know, but the family just yeah. wanted to hold on to hope so badly, and they just wanted them. Oh, they're confused, and they're just walking around. They don't know where they are, and they're just in a daze, and they'll snap out of it and find us. And that's kind of one of those things, not unlike television being in its time and place in 1963 with JFK, the laser printer. Everybody had a laser printer at home, mm-hmm. you know, so they're churning these signs out. If that had happened 20 years before, those signs wouldn't appear. Sure. And I remember seeing the movie War of the Worlds a few years later and being very upset over the fact that um, when they're escaping the city, they have these vans that are plastered with, have you seen, so on and so forth. And I know, I mean, that's a Spielberg film, and I know that there was a lot of debate over should they do that? I mean, it, it would make sense to do it because we've already seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still, you know, it's one of those things too soon. Yeah, I thought too soon. Hmm. So, well, I thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. I know I did. If they're still awake. Where can we find more information? Like if we want to follow Chris Pape. Freedom Gen 2, we find you on Instagram, correct? You can find me on Instagram at um, Chris Freedom Pape, P-A-P-E, uh, and and I, I try and post. It's funny. I, I put my artwork up and I put my drawings up and I get like three likes. Well, that's how it is. They and don't, they, I, right. I put you a put graph it, image up and hello, it, honey. it goes crazy. It's like me um, with the memes. But I try to put them in <laughs> historical context. So it's not just like, here's a blade train. 
it's really no, here, I know. here's I, a blade train with a backstory. Here's a, there's always a, a incredible backstories. One of my favorite Instagrams, Chris Freedom Pape. Find him on Instagram. Look for his books. And uh, I highly recommend there's a good eight-minute documentary on him on YouTube. Check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I really have a lot of respect for freedom as a graffiti writer, for freedom as an author, for freedom as a historian, for freedom as a father. Blessings. Please keep being you. Please keep shining the light on people that need light shined on them. And keep your heart open and pure. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, all your podcatchers. Just search Gold Mines and there we are. You can find Chris Freedom Pape. Obviously not on Amazon. <laughs> when you search him, he's a contributor, but he actually wrote the book, the Blade book, the best book. Chris Freedom Pape on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram, Claw Money. Twitter, Claw Money. Facebook, Claw Money. Everywhere, Claw Money, Claw Money, Claw Money. Follow our store. We are so funny. Claw Co. Come see us in person. We're on Delancey and Ludlow. And I'd like to thank my producer, Jose Alfaro. I'd like to thank Bubbles NYC for the music. And I'd like to thank you, our dear listeners. Please leave us a comment and let us know what you think. And we'll see you in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.